Good morning. It's great to be here. It's a wonderful day out that God has given us. This morning I'm going to read, it's going to be a long passage. We're going back into Ecclesiastes. I'm starting in chapter 9, verse 13, and then I'm going to read all the way through chapter 10. So Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfume's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him To the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich... sit in a few places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city." Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the fool, the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. It is true, because of sin and death, we live in a dystopian world. Everything of this world is hevel. That is the word used throughout Ecclesiastes. It means vapor and fleeting. And so Ecclesiastes explores all the things one might strive for of this world and concludes that since it is all heaven, we would be better off 
to find contentment in the temporary things that God has provided as a gracious and undeserved gift to us. And so just a few verses earlier in our chapter, uh, verses 7 to 9, contain the fifth and final command to contented enjoyment. We'll read that again, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. The second major theme is that God has designed for everything in creation. God's in control. It all goes according to his design, and the wisdom literature of the Bible calls living according to that design wisdom. There are many kinds of wisdom, but wisdom as a whole is the understanding of how to live skillfully in light of the reality which actually exists. So a wise man or wise woman does according to what is is real— and what will work out to be an actual real outcome, a fool tries to uh, fold reality around themselves, tries to force things to go their way. And so the last half of Ecclesiastes has begun to explore both the value and the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom is good, it concludes. It's certainly better than the alternative, which is folly or foolishness, but wisdom is limited. Wisdom can be of great value personally, but it won't fix the world. In fact, even the wise will die and be forgotten. Even the wise will sin, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Wisdom is of great value in avoiding the snare of sin, but it is useless to save us from it once we are ensnared. Salvation from sin is the work of God alone. And so there are these two limitations we've already looked at on wisdom. One is that we all sin. Uh, Another is that we all die. And so even if there were, by some chance, to be a ruler who is wise and and fair, uh, it would be short-lived because they would die, and then we (laughs) wouldn't have them anymore. So our passage today further explores the value of wisdom, but also introduces a new limitation on wisdom's ultimate value. And that limitation that we're looking at this morning is folly or foolishness. The wise may have the wisdom to save the city, but fools despise wisdom, and the words of the wise are not heard. And an even worse situation, and this is thoroughly explored throughout chapter 10, is when the ruler is a fool. Now, some of you may find this chapter immediately applicable in our current political landscape, but as we work through this chapter, consider the wisdom it offers as it relates to work when your boss is a fool, or school under foolish instructors, instructors, or even in a household or in a church. Immature and foolish leadership is a disaster to those who suffer under it, even to the wise. And yet, there is also wisdom offered here for how to live wisely under the foolish regime. So we begin again in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king, and besieged it. 
building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. And so what makes such a big impression on the author is not that the city was skillfully defended against seemingly insurmountable odds. Uh, there was actually a common story in the ancient Near Eastern literature where someone would have the, the skill, the wisdom, to outfox some greater force. But what is so uh, pointed about this is that wisdom is not appreciated or rewarded in the end. Ecclesiastes 7.19 says that wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city, but wisdom is sought out only in the most desperate of times. Otherwise, it is wealth, power, and prestige that receive honor and public attention. And so the poor wise man quickly fades back into obscurity. Ecclesiastes begins by praising wisdom's superiority, only to turn around and eviscerate it with the climax of the story. Though the poor wise man, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. And later, his wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Now, if it was a Disney movie, the attitudes of the people towards the poor would be greatly changed, and the poor man would be celebrated, but alas, this is reality, and wealth and social class are far more impressive than the poor but wise man. And so this story then introduces the primary theme of the entire section throughout chapter 10, that wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is vulnerable. Fools despise wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. And unheeded wisdom is then of limited value. And this is especially true when dealing with foolish and wicked rulers who function here as the central illusion, or central illustration, I should say, of what a fool looks like. And so this whole section deals with foolish leadership as a prime example of how disastrous folly can be. Earlier in Ecclesiastes 4, we saw that another limitation on wisdom was that even if in some rare circumstance there happened to be a wise ruler, uh, this is Ecclesiastes 4.16, uh, he and his wisdom would be quickly forgotten after his death. And so the expectation then, if that is the case, is that rulership would fall predominantly to foolish regimes, under which wisdom is severely limited in its ability to establish lasting good, and yet it is under such foolish leadership that wisdom is even more necessary than ever. And so, verse 17 and 18, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so the quiet words of the wise are far more valuable than the rants of a foolish leader, just as wisdom is better than weapons of war, as was illustrated in the previous story. But it, it only takes one shouting fool to persuade the masses of the rightness of his cause and so to nullify the value of wisdom's influence. It only takes one sinner, one bungling fool, to nullify much good, especially if that person is in charge. Wisdom is of great value, but in the real world, it is cut short from gaining lasting value by the presence of folly. Wisdom 
can easily fail, which introduces the second major emphasis of this section, the ways that folly causes failure. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and says to everyone that he is a fool. So though wisdom is far better than folly, a little folly mixed in will outweigh wisdom and honor in just the same way as a tiny amount of contamination will ruin valuable goods. Just as the presence of rot in expensive oil or perfume will ruin the entire vat, so can the presence of even one fool cause the entire project to fail. And this can be true even within the life of the individual. In a moment, through one act of foolishness, a career is finished. No matter all the past good that has been done, no matter how much trust that has been built, it can all come to nothing through one moment of folly. Oh God, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Next, we are told that the wise and the foolish will find themselves diametrically opposed. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart is to the left. Now, these, these terms, right and left, did not have the same political connotations back then as they do now. I know that's your temptation. Um, biblically, to the right usually means in the direction of strength, honor, and appropriate behavior, with to the left meaning the opposite of these things. But if nothing more, it means that the wise and the foolish end up going in opposite directions. They are committed to different worldviews, possess fundamentally different values, and their words and behavior will reflect that difference. In fact, Proverbs 12.23 says that the heart of fools proclaims folly. And Proverbs 13.16, a fool flaunts his folly. A fool cannot help but to announce his foolishness every time he speaks and acts. Then verse 4, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, this seems, can seem like a, a bunch of disconnected proverbs all the way through here. Follow with me that they are all actually about the same theme. Remember, the launch point for this whole section is the contrast between the wise poor man and the rich and foolish ruler in chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. And so now we are clearly dealing with the same foolish, loud, and angry ruler of verse 17. So it's talking about a fool, and then it says, and if the anger of the ruler, someone who's uh, prone to anger, this, this foolish leader, this foolish ruler comes, here's wisdom for how to react. The, the very circumstance that negates the benefits of wisdom in any ultimate sense only necessitates wisdom all the more. Let me say that again. This is one of the most important parts of this passage. The very circumstance, this foolish ruler that negates the benefits of wisdom in any ultimate sense. That is, wisdom won't save the nation. Wisdom's not going to lead us all into a utopian society. 
Wisdom's not going to fix it all. Because of this circumstance, though, it only necessitates wisdom all the more. So we're not to say, well, we don't need wisdom then, because wisdom's not going to fix everything. Now, I might just be preaching to myself this morning, but I'm one of these people that, in my mind, always thinks of how we could work it all out to be a better society. How could we fix it? How can we fix cameras? How can we fix Alberta? How can we fix Canada, the world? What, what do we need to do? And I need to be reminded that God is God and I'm not. And so Ecclesiastes in this passage is saying, look, your wisdom is good. It's important. Grow in that wisdom. Seek wisdom. But you're not going to fix it. You're not going to take the reins of control. You're not going to set things right. There's going to be foolish leadership. And that is going to thwart the ultimate effects of wisdom. But that very circumstance means you need wisdom all the more. And so there's major interplay between the the two points here in Ecclesiastes 10. Number one, wisdom is valuable and is certainly a lot better than foolishness, which is like shooting yourself in the foot over and over again. So wisdom's great. Wisdom's really good. But number two, wisdom will not provide the ultimate solution to wicked and foolish rulership because even an abundance of wisdom will be outweighed by a little folly in the right, wrong place. Wisdom will not bring you the freedom that you want from wicked rulers. Only the return of our good King Jesus will annihilate oppression and dry every tear from our eyes. The best of human wisdom will not bring salvation. This is just pragmatic. This is just logic. This is good reasoning. It is important for us to have right expectations, and the Bible gives that to us. There's no expectation for us to turn it all around by human wisdom. It's important, but we don't take the reins of control. And then here in verse 4, when the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay gray offenses to rest. We see that point number one, that wisdom is good and and valuable and necessary, is woven back into point number two. In, In the face of foolish anger, this wisdom is necessary. We must have a calm and rational response to angry individuals, especially if they have authority over us. Wisdom will respond with quiet and soothing words delivered in the right way and at the appropriate time. And so belligerence is is a foolish response. Anger is a foolish response. If someone is angry with us uh, foolishly, and this has happened to me recently, I don't want to tell this story because I don't want to out. But, you know, I I come into a situation and there's right away their, their hackles are up and they're mad at me. And um, I, I had to decide, you know, they're in the wrong, and it angers me that they are treating me like this. They're in the wrong, and, and I want to, to go off in a huff, or I want to say something angry in return, but I realized I need this person to do what I want them to do. So, so I immediately had a, a soothing response. Oh, I thank you so much for your service. I'm so sorry that it's been so hard on you these past two years. Um, please, you know, you have my, my thanks. Uh, not lying, but, but just giving these, the soothing words that you know that they want to hear. A fool responds anger for anger, and it all blows up. Quiet and soothing words. Respond to anger. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember, meekness is not weakness, but strength that is tamed. 
The wise must patiently await the downfall of the fool and their own vindication. And this may not happen within our lifetimes, or if so, in limited ways. But we know that ultimately, Ecclesiastes 8.12, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. So the wisdom here, interspersed amongst telling us that wisdom is not going to fix everything and having this uh, pragmatic view on life, we're also given the wisdom needed to navigate such a situation. A soft answer turns away wrath. Verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. The effect of foolishness as a fly in the ointment can be seen most clearly when it is found in those who have authority. It just, it's exposed much more quickly, and it affects far more people. One writer says, to have a fool on your team is bad enough. To make him the leader is a catastrophe. One kind of foolish behavior common to foolish leaders is that they prefer to promote and take advice from people who share their foolish outlook. They surround themselves with foolish friends and foolish advisors. So in this case, when it calls those who are elevated to authority fools and slaves, and then those who have been unseated, the rich and the princes, it's not describing their their actual social status, but their moral character. The fools and slaves are those who are unworthy of advancement, and the rich and princes are people of noble character. So this is not here presented as a positive situation where the poor receive greater than expected opportunity and are elevated but a general description of chaotic and senseless governance. It's actually uh, used in these exact terms through several examples of ancient Near Eastern literature used to describe a dangerous society in turmoil. Slaves on horses and princes on the ground. And so the the foolish error of the ruler is that he creates a a topsy-turvy world by placing all the wrong people in all the wrong positions. The fool, who should be given no responsibility at all and avoided at all costs, is given positions of authority and responsibility in this government. Continues verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt... And one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now again, it seems like just a smattering of Proverbs. Uh, but these four Proverbs may otherwise have a more general application, but in this context, must still relate to life lived under the foolish and wicked regime. The first two Proverbs give four examples of when, in the midst of constructive, everyday toil and tasks, the digging of pits, the demolition of walls, the quarrying of stone, and the splitting of logs, the worker is injured through no fault of his own. It is dangerous work. The context suggests that the foolish ruler is still in view. Who knows what the outcome of their investments 
and labor will be under the unpredictable policies of a foolish leader. And so they go to work, and they don't know if they're going to be harmed that day. They labor and toil, and they don't know if it's going to produce a reward or, or produce a negative effect. It creates an instability where even the wise cannot determine the right course of action because everyday activities carry inherent risk. Under, you know, if, if you've ever had a foolish boss, it's like you could work hard and do what would, wisdom would suggest and then ultimately get blasted for it. You just, you never know which way they're going to go because they're a fool. In fact, if you act with wisdom, that quite often contradicts what a fool wants done and how they want it done. I've experienced this too, but maybe you have. But this, this is something that is, takes place in our life so that even wisdom, when we act in wisdom, it doesn't always work out the way that we think it should. You can work for someone in an in a industry or in a, a school or whatever, and whatever you're doing, even if you act with wisdom, could be met with anger and could be met with hatred. So, do you see how it's setting out this limitation of wisdom? Wisdom is good. Wisdom can keep you from stumbling. Wisdom is like walking with the light on rather than walking with the light off. But it's not always going to work out the way that it should, especially if the leader, the ruler, is a fool. Even the wise cannot determine the course of action that will produce the desired results. Wisdom can reduce the likelihood of accidents, but it cannot eliminate the risks of living in this hevel world. The second pair of parables illustrates first a time when wisdom is of an advantage, and then when even a unique and specialized wisdom for the task is unhelpful. So the first example is if the axe is not sharpened, then the person wielding it has to exert themselves a lot more to make it effective. So some problems can be attributed to a lack of wisdom. If you're just banging away and it's not cutting, you know, do something different. Some problems are because wisdom isn't being brought to bear. But the skill of knowing how God has designed both wood and iron can come into play quite helpfully in this case. But the second parable of the pair, the snake charmer, who was bitten before he has a chance to charm the snake. Uh, snake charming was, in this day and age, a, a mysterious occupation that needed a special and esoteric expertise. So you think of someone who's considered a, a super expert in their field. You, today we might say, you know, a brain surgeon or something like this. A, a snake charmer was someone who had this special skill of dealing with poisonous snakes uh, without dying, which was quite amazing. But even such wisdom, a unique and practiced skill, is useless if the snake bites someone before it can be brought to bear. They might have all the wisdom, but if the timing's not right, it doesn't help. And that's what this is saying. It's too late. The damage has been done. And so wisdom is helpful in the right timing, but that too is often outside of our control. And so we have four parables Two, talking about how it's random chance. You don't know. Even wisdom can't help you to avoid the risk. Uh, One that says wisdom is used well in cutting down a tree if you sharpen the axe. And then another that says even if you have the wisdom but not the right timing, uh, wisdom is of no value. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This section of Proverbs are remarkably similar to those found in the book of Proverbs. Once again, wisdom is commended. Even if the royal snake might sometimes bite before it has a chance to be charmed, the wise will be calm in the face of anger and use soothing words to gain favor. The fool, on the other hand, is prone to ungracious outbursts and will not only hurt others, but in the end will bring greater hurt upon themselves. And what begins in foolishness, verse 13, ends in raving madness. The danger of foolish thinking is that it becomes a habit, and then it becomes a state of being. At some point, foolishness ceases to be the aberration, and it becomes a pathological condition. It's a great danger to walk in foolishness. It's a great danger to reject discipline and wisdom and instruction, because foolishness it, it does not become a one-off, but becomes a lifestyle. The description of the fool continues in verses 14 and 15. When it comes to words, the fool confuses quality with quantity. The number of their words is in inverse proportion to the extent of their understanding. As one commentator puts it, he has no knowledge of the future, but will hold forth with great confidence on the matter. He cannot speak wisely because he has no wisdom. He cannot speak truthfully, for he does not know the truth. Now, the wise person doesn't know enough of the future to control the times, but at least they know that they don't know and are not worn out by the wearisome business of trying. This is, this is the wisdom. The wisdom taught here in Ecclesiastes is your wisdom isn't sufficient, so the wise know that their wisdom isn't sufficient. And then they don't wear themselves out. The fool, on the other hand, thinks that he knows the way to control things, knows the way to, to assert his control. And he keeps toiling away even though he does not know enough, as it were, to find his way back into town. He keeps going. He keeps trekking. He doesn't know the way that he's going, doesn't know how to get there. Ecclesiastes teaches us the wisdom to know that we do not possess the wisdom needed to map the universe or to even control our own fate. We don't know what is to be or what comes after us. But to the wise is given enough wisdom to know the way to the city. That is, it is granted to us to know enough to ri live rightly. And that is enough. Ecclesiastes ends in, in chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. We wear ourselves out trying to gain wisdom, knowledge, for the purpose of control, for the purpose of gaining our own, our own safety, for the purpose of our, our own prosperity. But the Bible teaches us that these things are in God's hand, not ours. The fool wears himself out. 
but the wise rest in their good king. Ecclesiastes is unflinching about human weakness and inability to master our own fates. And yet God has graciously granted us in Scripture sufficient knowledge of his nature that we can fear him and enough knowledge of his will that we can keep his commands. This is the condensed essence of wisdom. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the end of the matter. This is rest. This is rest from our toil. Rest from what wears us out, church. Fear God. Keep his commands. It is simple. But it means letting go of trying to be God in our own lives. Finally, the preacher returns to folly in the national sphere and focuses on the disaster caused by immature leadership. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Now, when the ruler lacks the maturity and character for the job, it is a curse to the whole land. Even the wisest citizen can often do little to prevent the harm that results from incompetent and corrupt politicians and leaders. And especially if the ruler and his administrators view their power as an opportunity for self-indulgence. And the, the nation pays a terrible price. Alternatively, if the ruler and his administration are just and devout to their duty, it is a great blessing to the people. The translation of verse 19 here makes it sound like a totally disconnected thought. Bread is for laughter. Wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. It sounds a little like something that we wouldn't find in the Bible. Uh, that's because uh, a more literal translation is for laughter they prepare food, and wine that brings joy to living, and money meets the demands of or answers both. So what it's saying here is not that uh, bread makes us laugh and wine gladdens life, although the Bible does say that elsewhere, but that money is the answer for everything. What it's saying is, the, the implication is the money that should have been used to keep the kingdom in good repair is instead squandered in daytime partying. So they prepare food, not because they need it, not because they're hungry, but for laughter. They prepare food, bread for laughter, not for the satisfaction of their needs. Wine to make their lives better, and money is the answer for both. So that makes quite a lot more sense uh, once, you, once you see it that way. The implication is this, they've used all the money for daytime partying, and that's why the roof is falling in. And so the metaphorical roof, verse 18, is falling in. A more general parable about laziness is applied in this context, in verse 18, to the corrupt and degenerate government. If a man is lazy with respect to maintaining his house, eventually the roof falls in. So also it is the inevitable consequence of idleness and indulgence in government that disaster follows for the land. Now, this isn't... A 
an attack on government. This is, he's talking, I mean, this is someone writing a long time ago about the king and his officials. It's not just so we can all sit here and say, yeah, the government needs to do better, just in case that's where you think this is going. The point is that these, this is what humans are prone to. The likelihood that you will have to work for or work with or live under some sort of foolish leadership is, is nearly 100%, maybe 100%. And so as Christians, we're called to recognize that our wisdom is insufficient, but also that it is necessary to walk with wisdom in these situations. And so the roof is falling in on the country because of indolent leaders, laziness. And it, so it's not surprising that verse 20 goes on to speak of reviling the king and cursing the rich. Because the temptation to indulge in bad-mouthing such leaders is pretty great. So Ecclesiastes 10.20, our final verse. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Once again, despite its limitations, wisdom is commanded here. It is unwise to dwell on such thoughts when under corrupt and despotic rule, for thoughts can easily spill out into words, and even words spoken in private may find their way back to the rich and powerful, who can then do damage to you. It is, it is very difficult to harbor a thought continually without eventually uh, it finding expression in words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. And in our vernacular, we say the walls have ears. So instead of cursing our enemies, even when they wrong us, verse Timothy 2.2 says we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is, this is why wisdom is necessary, church. Because the way we live our lives reflects on our God and on our doctrine. And so it is important that we be people who have a soft answer to turn away wrath. It is important that we not become people who respond with belligerence for belligerence more and more entrenched in our, in our way of thinking and, and our rebellion, but we become people who pray for our rulers, pray for those who are in high position, even if they are fools, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Cursing authoritarian rulers and earthly masters is not only dangerous, but it fails to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Even slaves are commanded in Scripture, 1 Timothy 6.1, to regard their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So consider yourselves slaves. Showing honor to those who demand it, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Everything of this world is hevel, vapor, and fleeting. But that doesn't mean that the world is meaningless. Only that humans cannot figure out all of that meaning. What we can do is revere God. 
What we can do is find satisfaction in our work. We can enjoy the pleasures that God grants us by His grace. We can seek the wisdom that can be of some help. And we can entrust the rest and ourselves to God's mysterious governance. You know, we, we each long for a total comprehension of things. We, we desire the ultimate knowledge with which to establish our path and master our fates. We want to know how things are going to work out. We long for the peace of perfect knowledge, a firm foundation in truth which will provide for our needs, our safety, and our enjoyment. You know, many times in uh, my life I've had people come and say that they want to hear a word from God. They want God to give them direction. They want God to tell them what to do. And, and really what usually comes out, and I'm not saying every time you want to hear from God that this is this case, but usually what comes out is they want more knowledge than God is willing to give them. We know what it is to obey God. It's very easy to tell you how to obey God. But we want to have a comprehensive knowledge of how it's going to work out. We want a, a promise that it's going to all work out the way we want it to work out. This is what we long for. But we are not God, and He has not created us for such autonomy. He created us to find our peace in Him. We were designed to rest in the author of life, who knows the beginning and the end and who controls the plot. We are created to rely on wisdom from above and from outside us. We are not created to have all wisdom. We're created to rely on the wisdom from above if we are to know who we are and what life is all about and where we are going. And we will find our firm foundation only in God's revelation in Christ Jesus who is the touchstone of all reality and the focus of all wisdom. It is in Christ and on His words where we will find the only solid rock on which to stand and to build our lives. Ancient truth that will still be standing at the end of time. An authority that can be trusted. Ecclesiastes invites us to recognize that we are the created ones who rely wholly on the Creator. And so Jesus says, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You know, I don't know if I've ever understood this passage in this way, but we long for this solid rock on which to build things that will last. We long for the knowledge to know that something's going to work out the way we want it to. We want to imagine being able to make an investment in knowing how it's going to work out. To make a plan and know that it's going to go just the way that you planned it. But that's not who we are. That is God. And the only solid foundation is to hear and do the words of Jesus. Then we will have built like one who is truly wise. Even though we don't have full comprehension of wisdom, we can build as one who is truly wise. 
I cannot claim before you to be a wise man, but I know that with the power of Christ work at work within me, I can do what a wise man would do as I walk in obedience to Jesus. As we stand on the rock, we will learn to value wise words over the loud and foolish, whether they come from politicians, advertisers, or even preachers. As we stand on the rock, we will receive the wisdom necessary to navigate a tyrannical culture and a corrupt state. And through it all, we eagerly await the better king promised in Ecclesiastes 10.17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Isaiah 9.7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word even obscure passages like Ecclesiastes 10. But we find new and and hidden treasures. Wisdom from above. The wisdom to know that we don't have the wisdom to know. Grant us the peace and hope and joy that you have designed for us in our reliance on you, we pray. Help us to give up in our striving to control things for ourselves, to know everything for ourselves, and help us to have the wisdom of entrusting ourselves to you and doing your commands. Help us to commit to obedience, God, so that we can understand the words of Jesus. And as we obey, walk in wisdom. Transform us, O God. I pray even through this passage, As your spirit applies it to us, help us to know true wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. And that we would know the rest of trust and obedience. That we would know the joy and peace and hope of a life lived in this way. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. build my house whether storm or drought on the rock that does not move and I will set my hope in your love O Lord and your faithfulness will prove that you